0: Hi everyone, today is April 14th, 2016. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talkshop, the University of Texas San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Laura Colgan, who's been with us before. Hi Laura. Hi. She is assistant professor of neurobiology at the Center for Science. Learning and Memory. Yes. I'm- oh s- Sorry. Okay, let's start that again. Okay. Laura is Assistant Professor of Neuroscience at the Center for Learning and Memory at UT Austin, where she studies the functional significance and mechanisms of oscillatory activity in the hippocampal and entorhinal cortex. Hi, Laura. Hi. And around the room, we've got Brian Derrick. Hey. We've got uh, Isabel Muzio. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, not a great one today, uh, Salma <laughs> Qureshi. So we had you here in 2012, and we have a really great discussion with you in the archive and I, on the work you did with the Moser showing fast and slow of hippocampal gamma rhythm um, and how they differentially root information flow. And I really, really encourage everybody to go listen to that as a companion piece just because I think it's always interesting to see how discussions evolve on the same topic. And this, we may or may not talk about exactly the same things. We'll see. I want to revisit your ideas about fast and slow gamma for sure and how how you're finding them parsing out in a more functional context in your recent work. And you've had a few important studies since we last talked, and I do want to go into those. And I hope we get to those and you bring them up as as you see necessary. But I was first hoping we could talk about something that didn't come up in our last conversation, something that you, you think a lot about and you've done work on, And that sort of underlies a lot of what you're doing right now. And that's how theta rhythms, which coincide with exploration, and I guess we think learning because of that, that's sort of an old idea, how they interact with and might recruit gamma in memory operations. And so I know this is not a new topic, but I think it's sort of interesting to talk about it and think about how the theta-gamma coupling play out in this worldview of frequency-delimited gamma and retrieval encoding channels within the gamma band.
1: Yeah, so the way that we've been thinking about Theta recently is that each Theta cycle can provide sort of a snapshot of what is happening at that instant of time, or a snapshot of what the hippocampus is representing at that snapshot, at that moment in time, at that instant in time. And the gamma oscillations within the Theta cycle can then serve to organize the different elements of that snapshot. So, for example, if the hippocampus is representing a sequence of locations, then the different gamma cycles can organize the activation of the sequence. So, so can you flesh that out a little bit more? Because
0: organizing a sequence. So, let's let's start with theta sequence. This idea of sequence and theta and. and sequence coding.
1: Yeah. So if you think about a different, if you want to make the analogy of um, a sequence, instead of saying a sequence of locations, we can think about a sequence of events in an episodic memory, right? You can know that in the morning you parked your car in the parking garage and then you got out of the car and you walked to this building and got a coffee and then you walked to your office, right? There could be that sequence of basically kind of three events in three different places where you went, right? So in your memory, you need to organize those in terms of, you know, you remember that you were in the parking garage first, and then you got the coffee second, and then you went to your office third, right? So you have to organize those things temporally. And we know that um, within theta cycles that um, place sequences of place cells that are representing paths or trajectories through the environment, that within a theta cycle, the um, different locations are, are organized in that in that way, and that the individual gamma cycles may be keeping the order straight, if you think about it that way, right? Like in a path, there's a one location that's closest to the animal, and then there's another location that's closest to the reward, and then there's a sequence of locations that are kind of intermediate between that right but the order of those keeping the proper order of those locations organized is important right for the animal to use that memory of that path to actually reach the reward right does can that I make ask it you better a question yes.
2: related to that <laughs> um, the, what you are saying is true but the time frame of what has been shown can be organized by theta and gamma within you know, an, ex- an, animal, uh, an experience from the animal is very short, but the examples that you were talking about cover a very long time frame. So what do you think the role of these oscillations is in linking these events that are so uh, separated in time?
1: Yeah, so that's a good point. Obviously, the example that I gave of the parking garage and the coffee shop and the office um, wouldn't be likely to be coded within the theta, the same theta cycle. But one thing that we do know is that paths, even though they may be experienced in real time, in a certain amount of time that it takes to actually experience them the representation of the paths is compressed within a theta cycle. And it's particularly compressed, we found this, we published a paper on this earlier this year, that it's particularly compressed when slow gamma is present. And that um, was actually counterintuitive because it's a slower rhythm. So you have fewer slow gamma cycles per theta cycle, but yet you have longer sequences of locations represented within the same amount of time. Um, So I think that there is, to get at what you're asking, I think that there is some um, mechanism provided by the theta nested slow gamma for activating a compressed representation of a memory for a trajectory that's familiar So if you can imagine the animal is in a particular location, but he has a memory even though he hasn't experienced the upcoming locations yet, and he hasn't experienced the sensory cues that are directly related to those locations yet, he knows that those those locations are coming up because he's familiar with that. He's experienced it before. He's learned that sequence of locations. So the place where he actually is can then... Um, trigger the activation of the next place cell that was linked to that place cell through earlier learning, and then that place cell can trigger activation of the next upcoming location, even though the animal isn't actually there yet. And we think that the reason why slow gamma is able to do that is because the The length, the duration of the slow gamma cycle is actually relatively long. It's like 25 milliseconds. So when the cells get released from the gamma-mediated inhibition, then a play cell can fire, but then it can activate another one and then activate another one and maybe even another one before the inhibition kicks back in and shuts everything down. Whereas in contrast, when you have fast gamma, the cycles are, are relatively short. It's like 10 milliseconds. So one place cell becomes active, and it perhaps wants to activate the next place cell or the next sequence of cells, but the inhibition kicks in very quickly and kind of shuts everything down.
3: Yeah, so I have a question about uh, relating to the the different kinds of gamma. You think about it as a sequence, so we thought about a theta cycle. So you have a chunk, right, and then you have a trajectory. And you naturally think when you have another uh, oscillation of gamma, you think one thing and then the next and then the next. Um, but with different frequencies, it's a little bit odd. And so you could just think that the the trajectory is kind of a smooth trajectory, but the, the oscillation is making so you can only be active on certain uh, cycles. And so you could potentially do a, the same trajectory at fast or slow gamma. It's just it would you know come out the same or not. But then you have different mechanisms for whether that trajectory or that path of activity can build up. So, so you're
1: saying so whether it's, it's
3: continuous or discretized. Yeah, the, the 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 fact that it's a sequence may be just because you're controlling activity with an oscillation and not really one thing to the next to the next. It's just that you're using the oscillation to get certain kinds of activities and blocking others in a kind of odd kind of way.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I
3: well, mean, you know, seeing seeing your, um,
4: uh, you had mentioned that being a physiologist, you like to actually look at the raw data. And when you showed the slow gamma oscillations, I was like, you know, they remind me of sharp waves, and that sort of fits with the idea because you see the same compression of things that happen in real time. I guess it's seven times faster and, uh, than what would happen actually in real time. I guess that was an uh
1: Yes, yeah, so that's a really good point. So actually, um, Lauren Frank's lab showed a couple years ago, there was a really um, exciting paper by Carr et al from Lauren Frank's lab, where they showed that sharp wave ripples in CA3 and CA1 are associated with mm-hmm. slow gamma synchrony between CA3 and CA1. And then we actually have a supplementary figure um, from a paper that we had in 2014 where we replicated that finding, and now, and Isabel's nodding, because now when you look at the sharp wave ripples, you can't help but see <laughs> the slow gamma co-occurring, and it's like, how did we miss this before? It's so obvious, it's so clear. So I think that it's possible that... Um, Instead of so Isabel and I were talking a little bit earlier about whether you know this hypothesis that we had about fast gamma being involved in memory encoding and slow gamma being involved in memory retrieval. it could be actually that slow gamma is just involved more for these compressed representations or any time that the place cells aren't aren't like tracking what's actually happening right it's like because during the the sharp waiver bowl. Um, the place cells aren't tied to representing the actual place where the animal is, at least not as much, right? There might be a tendency for wake sharp waves for the replay to start from the location where the animal actually is. But, I mean, they, they represent distant locations. And then what we're seeing during theta-modulated slow gamma is that the place cell representations are also um, farther, you know, can extend farther away from the animal's actual
2: Locations. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Isabel, what do you think? Well, about that specific, the specific role, it's hard to say right now because one of the questions that really um, I'm more interested in related to gamma is that this oscillation has been implicated in so many different processes in different brain regions. If you look at cortical areas, gamma appears to be a mechanism of selective attention. Uh, in thalamic circuit, circuits, it, it, it seems to play a, a role in consciousness. And we see that at the level of the hippocampus, it can be involved in memory encoding. So I think there is something about the rhythmicity of the gammas, gamma um, oscillations that I, I cannot say specifically what function it has, but definitely um, plays a role somehow... Um, Allowing the binding of information, if it's sharp waves in the case that you were mentioning, or if it's um, in the case of attention, uh, the binding of relevant experiences, but it's something about the rhythmicity that allows cognitive performance to be enhanced. Now, I think that when you look at different regions, it may have, uh, it may be that the function has this slightly different uh, variations, and and the work of, that Laura has been doing has been trying to disentangle, right, what the contributions may be, um, and whether they change depending on the inputs that the hippocampus is receiving, which is also fascinating.
0: Um, right. So, how important is architecture? Of these, I mean, are we we talk about gamma as this one. I mean, it's just a description. It's a, it's a, it's just the frequency of an oscillation. Yet it's doing so many different things. And, I mean, do we see in cortex, for example, do we have like the range is parsing into different operations? Is, I mean, what what are the what's the status there? Is there any sort of equivalent um, channelization of gamma
1: into different functional streams? Well, different different functional streams. Um, some people have done work that touched on that. I'd say it's still in the early stages. But at least there are different frequencies across the cortex and other brain areas as well. Um, however, sometimes it's difficult. The frequencies don't always match up perfectly across the region, so it's hard to sort of say what matches with what. But, um, I mean, in our hands, in my lab, in the superficial layers of the medial entorhinal cortex, it's very fast gamma-dominated. We hardly ever see a slow gamma episode in superficial layers of medial entorhinal cortex. So I think this kind of goes along. It's similar to this idea that um, Pascal Freeze and... Um, 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 to, yeah. They work with this. Yeah, and... Um, um, oh my gosh, Why? what is wrong with me? Um, Earl Miller has also put out this idea with um, the top-down and bottom-up processing streams. Now, in Pascal's data, the, the top-down frequency was something like 25 hertz, so it's more they're calling it beta, but it's, again, it's like the names might not really be that meaningful. But the higher frequency oscillation Was thought to be the bottom-up processing stream, so it's sort of like um, it sort of fits with the memory encoding, memory retrieval idea, right? Because memory retrieval would be would be top-down, and memory encoding would be bottom-up. But then attention is a little more. I mean, that you would think would be top-down, but then there's also a bottom-up component, like what's getting selected in the environment. That sensory information is.
2: Well, the topic yeah. of attention, it gets more complicated because it's not a single phenomenon. The same way that you have different forms of memory, that you have explicit, implicit memories, you have different forms of attention. So maybe, maybe gamma oscillations are involved mainly with mechanisms of selective attention um, or unsustained sustain, attention that require um, stronger top-down influences. I am not sure. This is something totally, that has not been explored at all. She's an expert on gamma oscillations. So.
1: No, but I mean, you have the very nice paper showing the gamma selection when the animals have to tune out yes. one type of cues yeah. and just
2: pay attention to... Yeah, we saw that at the level of the hippocampus. Gamma uh, synchronization increases when the animals are trying to decide between different cues. But and more recently, we published that during extinction, when the animals have to decide whether the context is dangerous or safe again, we see an increase in gamma uh in gamma coherence um, but in what
0: end of gamma does it matter well
2: uh, <laughs> we um we wanted to see that based on the work uh of Laura we were really inspired by that but we didn't see a super clear dissociation, at least with the task that we were doing between high and low gamma. Uh, we saw a stronger effect on low gamma coherence. Um, in a way it was uh, it, it, it fits the ideas that Laura has published because during extinction the animals are retrieving aspects of the context, because the animals are seeing that, okay this context that was fearful is no longer fearful. So because extinction has new components and old components, it's hard to say. And we saw an increase in both low and high. So it's not the perfect task to tease apart um, her hypothesis.
1: And it's also something I should say that, um, and yeah, we are working in rats and mice in my lab and others have shown this as well. There is Unfortunately, it would be perfect for us if the results were all the results were consistent across species but what we're finding actually is that there is some differences between rats and mice so for example in rats um, the the um, power of fast gamma oscillations increases with increasing running speed but the slow gamma oscillations are more prominent at low running speeds and in mice both are increasing with running speed so mm-hmm. i mean that's just a correlation but still it's it's something yeah, sim- and it, and I, and I, I, I know from other labs that i've talked to that it seems like slow and fast gamma seem to be less antagonistic to each other somehow in the mouse recordings or you see they seem to be together more often than, than what we would see in rats. So that makes At least we couldn't separating.
2: in our tasks. We couldn't see the, the um, whenever we saw an increase in gamma coherence, it was in both. We never saw the dissociations. I thought that maybe the tasks were not optimal to see those dissociations that Laura, because I think that her theory is totally um it's very interesting and very appealing and we were trying to see. And there are some things that we saw that kind of corroborate her thinking, but it wasn't completely clear in the mouse.
1: And even just to make it even more of a pain, there's even differences we're seeing now in my lab across strains.
2: Well that is not surprising. So,
1: <laughs> so, you know, if you have the you know, the typical black uh, six control mouse but then you have a different background you know for a transgenic model and then you would expect the controls to be the same and that's not necessarily but the that's case it. So
2: that is totally uh, interesting and I think I totally believe it because having worked with several different strains of mice and um, I see that even the learning ability changes um, so some some lines are so smart, and then the black sticks are you know, <laughs> intermediate. They are not the smartest, they are not the dumbest, but um, some are amazing. Amazing how fast they can learn. Um, What's the
4: smartest mouse?
2: <laughs> I was trying to remember. Is the one twenty nine C? I don't remember the letters that come before, but that that line was incredible. The physiology was also enhanced. Like those mice when. Uh, we were testing plasticity in those mice. It was enhanced relative to others. So,
3: hmm. well, it's interesting to think whether there's there's different views about whether things are are really hierarchy related to each other, right, or that you just have different tasks and you want to be in a different frequency band. In this area of the brain is doing different things, and so you know they start you know maybe in mushy gamma and then. Get really good because they can segregate that task in one low gamma and want that task in a higher gamma and it works really cleanly. And maybe that animal's much better at that set of tasks. And then the other animal doesn't need to be that optimized or you're doing the wrong task where the separation is and it's a lot more mushy and stuff Hmm. like that.
1: Yeah, it could be. Um,
3: And I don't know whether you can, you can Hmm. correlate the performance on the task that you're, that you're looking at. And look at whether the, the either the segregation or the control of of the frequency or the powers is more optimal, rather, you know, rather to performance. I guess I, I don't know. I mean, across tasks, whether there's it's too much.
2: Hmm. Yeah. What? You answer. She's the expert. <laughs> so I did.
4: Going back to the, the the frequency idea, I'm sort of a, I'm leading up to a question. But but you mentioned that uh, consciousness and selective attention are two things you see with, with uh, gamma oscillations. To remember, hippocampus is cortex, and so it may be both that is in, involved with. But um, one thing I wanted to mention in terms of going back to LTP, you had talked about some stimulation um, uh, activity that was sort of like theta bursts, for example. An you know, old finding from the old LTP literature is that if you're looking at the perfect path to either dentate or the hippocampus, and we saw this in CA3, <clears throat> theta bursts work great, but it's ideal to have the individual bursts at 400 hertz. fairly high frequency. Within the hippocampus, 100 hertz is more ideal to induce LTP. So it sort of an interesting idea when you use the perfect path. Higher frequencies seem to be optimal in inducing plasticity. So that sort of fits with the idea of extrinsic, high-frequency, fast gamma and intrinsic lower frequency. But that was where my question comes from. I was under the impression from someone who gave a talk on oscillations that when you're looking at different parts of the brain communicating with each other, that lower frequencies were better, and that within a structure the higher frequencies predominated. And this sort of seems to be different. Am I imagining this, or (laughs) have you heard this?
1: No, I mean, I think that, well, definitely that idea comes from the, the thought that the lower frequencies can tolerate longer conduction delays, but if you think of it instead as each area is its own is its own oscillator, and then you just need some anatomical connectivity to connect the oscillators, and then they'll they'll go in synchrony with each other, right? Like the two clocks on the wall, right? They're they're two different oscillators, but the wall is their connection. They're they're going to synchronize. So then, if you think about it that way. Um, it doesn't, it's not inconsistent with the, right. The, right like if the, okay. if the, these long range projections needed to actually be part of this big circuit that was generating the oscillation, then yeah, obviously there'd be some limit on the frequency that would be related to the conduction delays. Right. But with gamma, it's thought that each, that each um, area would be its own oscillator and then they would just be coupled. Okay or one can entrain the other.
4: Okay, so was um, more dogma than it was the other. Well, there, here's one observation that I remember this from Stereotis' lab, but maybe it was done by other people too. And they were just measuring on the cortex coherence versus distance under ordinary circumstances. And what they saw, saw was low frequencies showed coherence over big distances, high frequencies over short distances. So that's actually... Uh, Experimental observation under some kind of particular circumstance, uh, which may not hold the minute that animals started to do something else. It was probably even anesthetized animals that they were doing that way. But it is an ancient—it's an ancient observation about the cerebral cortex and frequencies on the cerebral uh, uh, cortex.
2: I have a question for Laura. Uh, two questions, but I will start with one. Um, you, when you were introducing your talk today, you were showing uh, oscillations, and um, historically people have been looking at oscillations um, a little bit with a scepticism. And one of the reasons is that there is so much variability in oscillatory activity that is hard to extract the patterns, at least with the tools that we have that allow us to say, okay, this is the correlate of a particular behavior, which is what we are trying to understand. So um, how much of that has been a problem working with rats in order to try to understand the questions that you have been addressing in your lab? The variability that you see normally across animals and across tasks, um, how... Hmm. Is your lab trying to overcome those aspects?
1: Well, it becomes, you know, honestly, for CA1, it's not such a big problem. Things mm-hmm. look more stereotyped in CA1, but for CA3, it can become a pretty big problem because even within the same animal, dependent on the electrode plate, you know, which area of CA1 the electrode is placed in, the signal can look very, very different. So you have a lot of variability that I think is partially explained by the the anatomy of the region, right? Just the C shape of CA3. And also the dentate has a very strong gamma. And then if you're in CA3C, you're getting a lot of volume conducted passively conducted activity from the dentate, so in how we've we've dealt with it, even though I love c a three we focused a lot of our studies on c a one that's not a very satisfactory answer but but in c a one I feel like the variability is much lower across across animals and also within the animal, and so um yeah, it hasn't it hasn't been as as problematic. But as we're trying to go into these other regions like right now actually we're doing a study in dentate gyrus and CA3 and there I mean yeah, I think we just have to have larger numbers to to have stronger, you know, higher statistical power because the variability is just higher across the recordings. So, yeah. And then I mean like we're you saw today the way that we were plotting those results, and I know the listeners haven't seen the talk, but, but we plotted one thing that we know that is responsible for the variability in fast gamma frequency and power and in slow gamma power is running speed. So, you know, always accounting for that in our analyses is, is a really important um, step, too, because... Yeah, and if we plot it against, and you want to see the effects by eye, and you plot it against running speed, it makes it easier to believe that the effects aren't explained simply by running speed, and then, of course, you include that in the statistical analyses as well. What so, happens to
0: theta with, with running speed?
1: Doesn't it off, go off? Isn't it like a... No, oh, no, theta, and, and theta actually, it, I didn't point it out in those figures today, but theta, and this wasn't shown by us, other people have shown this, but... The frequency of theta also increases a little bit with running speed. It's not a super, you know, it's not like increasing twofold or anything like that. But I mean, it's the frequency is increasing a little bit with running speed, and we see that as well. So, but yeah, theta is um, very, uh, yeah, the power of theta is high when the animal is moving and moving quickly, and um, yeah.
3: Does anybody so, use that as a as a clue to what's going on? What what do we know about why and how the what's the dependence on running speed
1: well i know that um i think it was uh king uh and o'keefe anyway a paper from john o'keefe's lab they had shown i forget the year on this paper but they had shown cells in the medial septum that are modulated by running speed so they are increasing their firing when um the animals as a function of of running speed, so with the medial septum's role in theta generation, it could be explained by that, right? But I don't know how much people have delved into it, to be honest. And then we see we see fast gamma frequency increasing as a function of running speed, and my amensis lab has shown that as well. And um, there, what we think is going on is that also now because it has been shown by Moser Lab and others that um, the cells in the medial entorhinal cortex cells, that there are cells in the medial entorhinal cortex that are increasing their firing as a function of running speed. So, and there we can see that also um, during the fast gamma periods, we're seeing interneurons in the hippocampus that are increasing their firing as, the, as a function of running speed. So, um, yeah, I think. What's that? How How come? Well, I think if the cell firing is driving the oscillation, like the on firing is driving the oscillation, and then it starts firing faster, then the frequency of the oscillation will increase. And if
4: you're moving faster, the keys are hitting you faster, so the processing has to sort of step up. Well,
3: that's what I was, it was kind oh, of Oh, you mean
1: how come functionally? Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> i <hate> talking mechanically. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, no, how come,
3: like, functionally, like, what is it? Because, I mean, I don't know, I'm just trying to, trying to put things together. Partly, we were talking about... <clears throat> Uh, slow gamma is this thing that's projecting out in terms of uh, your trajectory and sequences and in terms of where you're going to be and so forth. Uh, and then...
1: Yeah, so the interesting thing is that like what we, we showed in a, in a paper, um, I think it was, yeah, anyway, it's in hippocampus within the last two years or something, that slow gamma frequency is not changing much as a function of running speed. So that kind of goes along with the idea that during slow gamma, it's not as tied to what is actually happening, what the animal is actually doing. But fast gamma frequency is increasing as a function of running speed, and then our interpretation of that is the same as what Mike Menta concluded in his paper, was that to, as you're moving through more locations more quickly, with fast gamma, like the the place cells are representing... The trajectory as it's happening in real time and if you think you have like one location represented essentially through one if on each fast gamma cycle then if you're moving through those locations more quickly you have to have a higher frequency of that rhythm right to also transition across the cell assemblies coding those locations more quickly It's time compression the faster you go
2: is it this time and then when you start yeah.
4: going the same speed as you process the information like seven times a second and time actually goes backwards, <laughs> but you must not that. be able to go that fast. <laughs> yeah.
0: There must be an absolute limit.
4: <laughs> yeah, if you don't, you'll have a seizure, and your car will go off into a cliff and be off. So. so,
0: where does that fit in the dogma of of fast and slow as encoding and retrieval? Because the well, two things are kind of different. Are you? You're, I mean, they are interfering, and there's kind of this.
1: Since well, I think, it's,
0: simultaneously. Is it, well, it I think it's,
1: again, I think it does, because, again, I think if the animal is really moving quickly, right, they have to be keeping track of the, uh, I mean, I don't, I think memory encoding, we're saying that memory encoding would happen during fast gamma because fast gamma is the frequency for transmitting the information about what is currently happening. Whether it's actually going to get encoded or not may be a different issue, right? Right. But that's like the incoming sensory information. So if the animal is running really fast on a track, he actually needs to be taking in that sensory information, right? Otherwise, he's, in fact, going to fall off of the the track, right? Whereas with slow gamma, if it's more like predicting, imagining a future location or retrieving a memory of something that's been stored before, that's not tied to what is actually happening. So you wouldn't need the frequency of slow gamma to change as a function of what the animal was actually doing, because the information that's getting represented during those cycles isn't necessarily, it's not, you know, so strongly tied to what the animal is actually doing. Whereas the fast gamma frequency, it does need to change as a function of running speed because the animal is running through those places more quickly. So you need to transition across those different cycles more quickly as well, which means you're oh, it really work that frequency. way. So if
4: you double the running speed, you
1: double the frequency. <laughs> it's not a linear uh, transformation right. like that. No, no, it's it doesn't fit it depends, together so would, perfectly, Charlie. Yeah, really that would be great, but. <laughs> <laughs> so do you see more
0: power in gamma in, like, enriched environments versus in more, like, basic environments and, or novel versus learned environments? Like, it seems like there's a lot of stuff to be mined there in that world. Do you have-
1: I mean, yeah, for novel environments, yeah, we see more. Um, those data are unpublished, so take it with a grain of salt. To I mean, it's under review right now. But um, we see more. We see an enhanced gamma during in novel environments. And we don't have data to speak to that, but we think that that it's probably um, neuromodulators that are involved in causing that. The next increase. time you visit, that's what <laughs> we'll be
2: talking about. Do we have time for a last question or not? Yeah, we have five minutes. In cortex, gamma synchronization has been shown to, well, the work of Pascal Priest has shown that increases, you know, with task-relevant information, and when the animals make an error, you see that decreases. So it really shows that uh, gamma can modulate either exciting or inhibiting the circuitry. uh, What is important for the animal, do you anticipate that finding the proper task, you would be able to disentangle similar roles at the level of the hippocampus?
1: I hope so. I mean, that is the that is a direction that we are taking right now. Unfortunately, I don't have enough data to talk about any results there, but hopefully we will have something to put together for SFN. We're in a little bit of a crunch moment right now trying to um, to, to see whether we have enough to present at SFN, but I hope so. I mean, that's definitely, that is really the critical question, right? Yeah. It has to be related to memory performance.
2: Yeah. And it will show a, a function and implication for changes in gamma. Which, exactly. You know, enhancing what is relevant, decreasing the, the processing of the irrelevant information. Yeah.
0: S- super. Thank you for joining us, Laura Colgan. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.